The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, June 21st, 1998, Father's Day. I'm Sally Helm. At the Church of Atonement in Fairlawn, New Jersey, there's going to be a wedding. A crowd is forming outside, people cheering for the couple-to-be. There are also reporters and police who brought bomb-sniffing dogs to sweep the sanctuary to make sure that nothing goes wrong. One lone picketer holds a sign that reads, There are no gays in heaven. Repent. John and Michael Galluccio arrive at their wedding with purple-tipped orchids pinned to their lapels. Technically, this is a holy union ceremony. Same-sex marriage won't be legalized in New Jersey for another 15 years. And technically, the Galluccios had already marked their holy union. They'd held a private ceremony the night before at a nearby church, surrounded by their family and friends. But the Galluccios still want to have this ceremony. In front of not just God and their loved ones, but the press, their supporters and the picketers, because the Galluccios are already public figures. A few months earlier, they had secured the right for gay and unmarried couples to jointly adopt children. At their public ceremony that day, they'll wear yellow-orange lays sent to them by a gay couple in Hawaii who were suing the state for the right to marry. Take pictures if you can, the couple said. We'd love to add them to our growing scrapbook of the journey to equal rights for all. Today, a love story, an adoption, and a high-stakes legal battle. How did the Galluccio family come together? And how did their son's adoption end up changing the lives of other families all across the country? It was, holy cow, this is like big deal. We just changed stuff. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Long before they became the face of a movement, John and Michael Galluccio were just two teenagers. How did the two of you meet? Tell me about that. <laughs> so, it's a bit of a story. That's Michael. In 1981, he and his now-husband John were both students at Glassboro State College in New Jersey. And Michael was a big man on campus. He'd been voted Brother of the Year in his fraternity. His girlfriend was the captain of the varsity cheerleaders. 19 years old and at the top of my game, never even entered my mind that another guy wouldn't even be a thought. Meanwhile, John... I was in the closet. I knew that I was gay. I thought back then that that the only options for me was to be in the closet and cheat with men. So that was what I thought my future was. But one day, John sees Michael in the student center. He was in little... Daisy Duke. Daisy Duke <laughs> shorts and a half-teak sh- shirt. 
And I was stopped in my tracks, and uh, I thought, okay, I want him. John had never thought about joining a frat. In fact, he was anti-frat. But after seeing Michael, he decides maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea after all. During one of the pledge events, he finally approaches Michael. This skinny little kind of trashed guy came up to me (laughs) and tapped me on the back and he said, so why should I join your fraternity? And I looked at him and I said, oh, you shouldn't. And I turned around and I walked away. That was kind of how the pledge process went. It was so mean to him. You know, everything you think of when you picture hazing, that was me. Yeah. But then he kept showing up. And they started hanging up. Our girlfriends were best friends. So we hung out, the four of us, and then pretty soon we didn't need the girlfriends. (laughs) They got together the night John was finally accepted into Michael's frat. Wait, before we jump ahead, I just want you to know that he started it. I did. (laughs) After the frat's hell night, Michael invited John into his room. It was a mishmash of broken furniture. Crappy mattresses. Everything was red and gray, the frat's colors. There are frat posters and flags. The room was on the first floor. There were main windows right on the front deck. We just kept the blinds down. And they didn't leave. I don't know, out of fear and I guess lust, we stayed in my room literally for um, two weeks. Ten days. Ten days. Drinking um, cheap wine out of gallon bottles and... Having lots of sex. And talking and talking and talking. And what are we doing? You know, that kind of thing. This is messed up. They didn't know what to do about the frat brothers outside or their girlfriends who kept banging on the door. Saying, when are you guys going to come out? You've been in there for days. What's going on? But they did know that they wanted to be together. During that two weeks... For me, at least, there was no question. This was who I am, and not only is this who I am, but I freaking love this guy. He made me commit to forever that first week. As John put it, they finally came out of the bedroom, but they didn't immediately come out of the closet. They do tell John's mom, and the conversation goes well. But when they finally tell Michael's family, it's a different story. Screaming and crying, garbage bags filled with all my stuff thrown out on the lawn. Mm. And literally, no lie, all four of my grandparents running down the street chasing John, saying that they were going to effing kill him. Michael had known this might be the reaction. He was the oldest child in a Roman Catholic family, He himself had grown up thinking that if you were gay, you'd have to give up a lot. Your family, most of your friends, any religion, and ever having children of of our own. That was the first thing my mother said when I told her, is now I'll never have grandchildren from you. But that last thing, children, is actually what helped Michael mend the first thing, his relationship with his family. Just a quick side note, we're sitting in his family's house right now. where we live. <laughs> yeah, it all um, worked out. So okay. it worked out very, very well in the end, but um, it took a Years. decade to get there. During that decade or more, there was a kind of chilly truce. 
John was allowed to come to family events as long as he wasn't openly there as Michael's partner. He says he was always asked to take the family photos, never to be in them. Meanwhile, Michael and John moved across the country to Los Angeles. So we partied a lot. It's the 80s. What did you do, right? We were, it's gay. It. We were gay. That's what you were supposed to do. Party and shop and go on vacation. I mean, that's what society <laughs> told us we were supposed to be doing. But it, it turned out poorly for him. John developed a drinking problem and went to AA. He got sober, and as part of the whole process, we started having conversations, much more deep conversations that we had, than we had had. Than we never had in 13 years. Well, except for that first 10 days. Right. One of those conversations happened around a dinner table at a restaurant on New York's Upper West Side. They'd moved back there to be closer to family. That was the dinner that children came up, that we wanted to be dads. And but neither of us knew that the other even ever thought of it. We were talking about, oh, I'm glad, you know, really there's nothing that I really regret, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, you know what? I'm wrong. There is something that I regret, and it's that I'm never going to be a father. And he, it was like in the old cartoons when the, the eyes bug out and the tongue rolls out on the floor, one of those. And he's like, are you kidding? That's like my biggest dream in life. But it had seemed to both of them like an impossible dream. It's the early 90s. Same-sex marriage won't be legalized nationally for another 20 years. And adoption by gay couples was not the norm. Laws and their interpretation varied state to state, even judge to judge. But now that John and Michael have realized they both want kids, they start looking into their options. And they make a plan. First, they moved to New Jersey. They didn't want to raise kids in the city. And they enroll in a foster-to-adopt program. They'd become foster parents, then apply to adopt the child they'd been parenting. That process starts with a training course. And of course, we're trying to be the best little couple in the class. You know, the ones, every question, we'd raise our hands. Every assignment was early. Every, everything that we did was no one's going to have any reason to say no to us. And they ace it. After making it through the classes, they get a letter saying they've been approved as foster parents. As one of the final steps at the foster agency, they're handed a list and asked, would you be okay fostering a child who has cancer or a heart condition? They have to tick off the boxes next to all the conditions they'd be open to. The last items on the list are drug addicted and HIV positive. And we looked at them and we looked at each other. And they check both boxes. John and Michael are clear in their minds that they just want a baby. They had faith that they wouldn't be given something they couldn't handle. When they hand their paper in, the woman going through the forms tells them, you do realize checking this off means you're likely to get matched with a baby that's HIV positive. Yeah, I, we understand that that's what we're going to do. This was a scary thought. They knew people who had lost children to AIDS. But we thought we have to do this, even if we lose the child. At least they'll have a better life. At least they'll have a better life. Until that time. And we'll be parents. Hmm. And, and so it wasn't that 
scary after that point. Two days before Christmas 1995, Michael walks into the living room and sees John on the phone. And he's writing. And on the paper, it says, baby boy, three months old, blonde hair, blue eyes. Premature. Premature. HIV positive. Hepatitis C. Hepatitis C positive. Tuberculosis positive. The baby had a hole in his heart, drugs in his system at birth, a lung condition. Intensive care, he's nearly died twice. A horrific list of ailments for an infant. But John and Michael told me, at that moment, all they're thinking is... We were going to be parents. They get permission to visit the baby right away, on Christmas Eve. We pull up in front, and it's had snowed, and it's freezing, and we're, like, sitting in the car, and we're just... Oh, we were, like, an hour early. Yeah, listening to Michael Jackson sing, I'll be there, and crying, (laughs) pretty much. They go inside, climb a narrow staircase, and see the baby sitting directly across from them in one of those baby swings. The head nurse asks, do you want to hold him? I didn't even have my coat off. And I'm like, picked him up, and he was just so tiny, and his shaking, and his eyes were going like this. Fluttering back and forth. He was in withdrawal from the drugs. Such a special, wonderful, and at the same time terrifying moments in time where... You talk about love at first sight, there was no question. I held that baby, and it was, I will do anything for you, little man, whatever it is that you need. Over the next few days, the nurses trained them on everything from how to change a diaper to how to administer the phenobarbital that their baby relied on to manage his withdrawal symptoms. And at one point... One of the nurses says that they should name him, which John and Michael didn't think they could do until the formal adoption. Throughout the process, they'd been told over and over. There's no guarantees, there's no guarantees, there's no guarantees. But they do have a name in mind, Adam. It's based on John and Michael's parents' initials. Adolf, Dorothy, and Anne Mary, which was his parents and my mother. To Adam, and eventually his future siblings, Michael would be known as father, and John would be daddy. The kids refer to him as their mom. If you were to ask them, who's your mom? Daddy. John was going to be the main day-to-day parent. He'd quit his job to stay home with Adam. How did it feel for you to be in the traditional mom role? It was emasculating. There were always mothers always commenting, telling me I was doing something wrong. Oh, is it mom's day off? You have the baby? So there was a lot of explaining to just strangers. But in the early days, that is the least of their worries. John and Michael take Adam home, and they're busy addressing his immediate medical needs and stressing about the things that all new parents stress about. Like napping. He's too quiet. Oh my God, I need mm-hmm. to check. You know, is he burping too much? Then he broke out in a rash on his face and we were like, oh my God, what did I do? What happened? And, and as it turns out, it was Michael's beard. Plus, within Adam's first week at home, John, the stay-at-home parent, faces a trial by fire. 
months ago, Michael had agreed to go to a work conference in Las Vegas that January. They didn't know they'd get a baby this week. And Michael feels like he can't back out now. So on day three with a newborn in their home, John is on his own. And to make matters worse, it starts snowing. A lot. John panics. He thinks, what if they lose power and he can't give Adam the treatment for his respiratory issues? He runs across the street to the neighbors. He calls his AA sponsor for support. And he calls Michael, furious. I spent three days on the phone literally cursing at Michael. Like, get home! What What the hell? Meanwhile, in Las Vegas... It was hot. (laughs) But once the blizzard hits back east, all flights are canceled. Michael tries frantically to get home. He feels terrible that he can't be there, but he's stuck. John ends up locked in the house for three days alone with Adam, watching 36 inches of snow pile up on the windowsills. I came out of that blizzard as a winner, and nobody was ever going to tell me I wasn't a good parent because I just did that, and screw you. (laughs) Tell me what you've done as a parent, and I'll tell you what I just did. And so it gave me the confidence to go forward and to meet all those little questions and objections and and passive-aggressive statements. That confidence was about to come in handy. Over the course of the next several months, John and Michael continue to nurse Adam to health. John does the brunt of the day-to-day parenting, and they're waiting for the news that they're approved to adopt. They said there had been no indication that this would be a problem. We got a letter to John Holden and Michael Galluccio. You have been approved as... You're an approved family. But one day that September, John gets a phone call. It's, it's it, it, it has to be one of the most traumatic events of my life, was the phone call. I mean, you just ask about it, and I'm already an emotional mess. It's a sunny afternoon. Adam's napping upstairs. John is cleaning the cabinets. And he picks up a call from someone at the Adoption Resource Center. She tells him... We have a problem. And I'm like, what, what's the problem? She says... There's a state law saying that a couple can't jointly adopt a child unless they're married. And I'm like, I can't get married. And she said, exactly. So the um, we can put it in Michael's name. Um, John didn't hear the rest. I, I just, I remember sliding down the cabinets. With the phone, like, it was like, what are you talking about? Like, and it just felt so personal. And it was just like, it was me. And it was because I stayed home and because I didn't make an income. And because I, I, and it was like, I've been home taking care of this sick baby. And what, it, it, it made no, any kind of sense to me whatsoever. And it, and it just was so devastating. I went home and found him crying, still from however many hours before. I'm like, you've got to have this wrong. You've got to have this wrong. But the center said, we can't let you adopt as a couple. 
we can let Michael adopt. He has an income, good health insurance. He's likely to be approved. And then down the line, John can apply to adopt Adam separately through what's called a second parent adoption. Michael's first instinct is to accept that path. It seems safer. I probably would have adopted him and done a second parent adoption, even though I vehemently disagreed with it. But I didn't want to lose the baby. He came from a, a family that was, don't make waves. You find another way, you move around, but you don't make waves. He comes from the exact opposite. Look for ways to make waves. They sit down to talk about it. This plan would mean that John, the parent who was home all day, would have no legal rights to the baby. If something were to happen to Michael before a second parent adoption went through, John would have no legal right to even petition the court to adopt his son. It didn't make sense. It wasn't fair to Adam, and I wasn't going to stand for it. And I thought, you know what? You're 100% right. We've got to do this. Whatever it takes, we've got to do it. We were on the same page. He was just reading slower. (laughs) (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Pretty soon after that traumatic phone call, before John and Michael have decided exactly how to fight this, they get another call from the same agency saying, we have another baby for you, a three-month-old named Andrew, who was also HIV positive. John and Michael agree to take Andrew in. But then a few months later, the agency tells them... We made a terrible mistake. His, he's been reported kidnapped. Oh, man. We were not supposed to give him to you. His family wants him. You need to return him right away. Oh, are you kidding me? Turns out, Andrew had a living grandmother who wanted him in her care. He should never have been in foster care in the first place. John and Michael unexpectedly have to give him back. Representatives we spoke to at New Jersey's Department of Children and Families said they weren't familiar with the specifics of this case, but this kind of thing can sometimes happen. Foster care is temporary, and if circumstances change, so can a child's placement. For John and Michael, this experience solidifies their belief that the system wasn't working the way it should be. They decide they have to get lawyers involved. The ACLU agrees to represent them in appealing Adam's adoption case. And the day they first meet with their lawyers is the same day they have to return Andrew to his grandmother. And so we had to surrender this child that we thought was going to be ours forever. 
as we're securing lawyers to fight for the other child that we also thought was going to be ours together. And while that was all happening, Jean called with another baby. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't think we can do it, Jean. But then Jean of the Department of Youth and Family Services says, we have a baby girl. Girls are rare in the foster care system, and John and Michael do want a daughter. They also know that they're about to get the ACLU involved in this whole thing, so they think they might be unlikely to get another chance to foster to adopt. Michael's dealing with the ACLU in the living room. I'm in the kitchen, and then I'm like, Michael, come back here again. (laughs) If we want a daughter, we have to say yes right now. And so they do. Madison joins the family shortly thereafter. Meanwhile, the ACLU's appeals aren't getting anywhere. They're going to have to go to court. And with Madison in the picture, John and Michael have another reason to fight for more than just Adam's one-time adoption. If they can manage to change state policy, they won't have to fight to adopt Madison all over again. And they'll clear the way for other unmarried couples, gay and straight, to adopt together too. As they're preparing to launch this case, they get some very good news. Adam's health has been improving steadily, and at 18 months old, he's declared HIV negative. This can happen. A baby might be born with HIV antibodies, but not go on to develop the disease. And that's what happened with Adam. So their family is stabilizing and growing. But they still have this huge legal hurdle ahead of them. On June 19th, 1997, they go public. They announce their case alongside the ACLU lawyers. I don't think we, either of us, realized what it was going to turn into until the first press conference. When we saw the amount of people in that room, it was like, oh my God. (laughs) This is real stuff. Afterwards, news cameras follow them out to the car. Immediately we knew it was a big, like, holy shit, what did we do? (laughs) Like, oh my God, this is so much bigger than anybody thought. The ACLU had filed two lawsuits on John and Michael's behalf. One was a petition to adopt Adam jointly without consent of the state. We call it our hostile takeover. And the other was a class action against the state of New Jersey, challenging the ban on adoptions by unmarried couples. The same judge was assigned to both cases, but Adam's adoption petition comes first. She reads over the materials, and on October 22, 1997, she's going to make her ruling. That morning, Michael makes Adam pancakes and jumps in the shower. And then they get a call from a reporter saying, are you headed to the courthouse? It turned out the timing of the hearing had been moved up at the last minute. So they have to rush to get ready, ticking everything off the list. We're going to make sure Adam looks perfect. He's dressed perfect. His hair's perfect. I don't want anyone to complain. How long will we be in court? What will we need? Do we need snacks? What do we do if Adam gets crabby during the thing? Who's going to watch Madison? Go, go, go. They make it. And they sit in anxious anticipation in the judge's chambers as she reads her ruling. There's no indication of which way she's leaning. Zero. To John and Michael, it sounds like legal gobbledygook. 
every sentence, we would look at each other like, what does that mean? And she was going through pluses and minuses and precedent setting versus not and so on. But finally, she says, I have decided that we will grant the adoption. Oh, my God. John and I were just happy to the point of not even being able to move. Just sat there. Didn't even hug each other. We looked at each other, but that was it. It was amazement. And we went outside and this, the cheering and the... Wow, it was so On the bottom of our hearts, we are so truly grateful that we stand here today. Up until that point, our goal was protecting Adam. And should it help us in the future? Absolutely, we wanted to do that. And would it help other people? Absolutely, we wanted to do that. But I think our, like, number one, two, three, four, and five was Adam. And from walking out of that judge's chambers, it became about more than Adam. Now that the judge had ruled that Adam's adoption by unmarried parents was in his best interests, it was hard to argue for upholding a policy that prevented unmarried couples from adopting jointly. Two months later, the state of New Jersey settled the class action and agreed to change its adoption law. That made it the first state to explicitly allow joint adoption by unmarried couples, a huge victory for LGBTQ rights. Representatives from New Jersey's Department of Children and Families told us they're grateful to the Galluccios for pushing their system to better reflect its own values. They said what matters to them is placing children in loving homes. Michael and John adopt Adam and Madison, and soon afterwards, Madison's teenage sister, Rosa. And they also decide that even if they no longer need to be married to adopt, and even if they can't legally get married, they want to get married anyway. So I asked him on the steps. At the courthouse. At the courthouse. The day you got your name changed. Soon afterwards, John and Michael Galluccio step out of their minivan on the day of their wedding, with their kids there to witness the occasion. And they say their vows. Now, more than 20 years later, both Adam and Madison are engaged themselves. And when I asked John and Michael in our interview to tell me about each other, it was like hearing their own vows all over again. John, you can start. What is Michael like? Um, what is he like? He is, uh, I can't do this without crying. Um, crying? He's, um... He is absolutely my rock. He is the rock of our family. And always, I don't know, I just want to be, I've always wanted to be who he sees in his eyes. Hmm. He's like a, a, a mirror to my soul that shows me all the potential I have. I can't talk. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Michael, you could take over. Describe John to me. He's probably the bravest person I know. Everything that I'm not, he is. Mm. You know, he's the one who taught me, no question, that you don't settle. That you are allowed to have a dream and you can achieve it. He says, I'm his rock, and conversely, I, he's mine. He's literally the greatest guy I've ever known. Greatest person I've ever known. 
Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks today to Carlos A. Ball, who covered the Galuccio story in his book, The Right to Be Parents, LGBT Families and the Transformation of Parenthood. The Galuccios also have their own book, which covers this story, called An American Family. They co-wrote it with David Groff. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editors and sound designers are Corey Choi, Pat Burke, and M. Lewis Gordon. By the way, congrats to Corey and his wife, Rachel, whose baby, Jacob Fox Choi, was born while we were producing this episode. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.